There's a lot to say from Ephesians chapter 3 as we continue our journey, so I'm going to be really expeditious. I'm going to do my best to manage this material. I'm resting on the fact that we are recording, and I could even provide my outline written, because when you have an entire chapter with such rich material, and we're only going once per month, I've got to lay out a bunch of details for us to get in our heads, go back to, and then chew on together in our churches. That's the purpose. So I'm viewing this more like a teaching. I'm in a classroom. We're getting, you know, we're disseminating the information and then we're going to download it together. So that's the way I'm viewing this. But in my recap, I'm going to be very brief here. Uh, there's a few people visiting or here for the first time, I think. So the recap will help you, but we've also posted these messages Actually, I think I just sent them out through email, but I can post them on maybe our Facebook page or my blog page, which Evan recovered for me. Uh, we lost our subscribers, all 10 of you <laughs> that used to subscribe. So we're going to try to figure out how to get you guys back. But um, I could post the links. So <laughs> that's 10 of you. I don't know if it was 10 of you, if it was just my mom, my my wife, my sisters, my kids, and then maybe two left. I subscribed. That's the ninth one. So that tenth person, that mystery person, um, thank you. I'm sorry we lost your name. You can come back. So our our theme as, as, as churches, we're going through this season of rest, entering God's rest from our works, which means uh, also doing the works of God in the spirit. So to do his works in the spirit is to be at rest from our works. And with that, uh, the spirit is speaking to us to become more powerful in the Lord. So that's our real theme. Prophetically, the Lord has spoken to us, uh, prepare for battle. He's preparing us with a strong prophetic urgency to enter into a new level of spiritual warfare. So that's what we're doing. Now, I believe we're in it, but we're also preparing the Lord spoke to us. And by the way, also a couple of the other works that we're connected with. Uh, he's spoken to us to go through Ephesians in a fresh way and use its wisdom to equip us and become more powerful in the Lord to confront this principality, this this power over our city, this religious spirit, whatever it is that the Lord will help us identify by the way, we're we're connected with some folks. Recently, we've made a good relationship with some folks that lead a church in Pensacola, Florida. And God's been speaking to them out of Ephesians also. And their leadership team's coming to our conference, Lord willing. So it's six of them or less, depending on what they can swing. But that's cool. And then also the folks in Chicago, God's been speaking to them out of Ephesians. And Jeff is leading that class that meets uh, online every Tuesday night, uh, teaching on Ephesians 4. So there's confirmations and it's all in the air. We've been going through now in chapter 1, we see how the Lord makes us powerful when we are people of high praise. Our defining characteristic is that we love the Lord, we're captivated by His beauty, we're recounting all of His covenant blessings, And we're just people of high praise and adoration. It's just who we are. And when we do it out of our hearts, we're powerful. Also, in the latter part of Ephesians 1, we're people who pray that prayer for one another. uh, That the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened to see this great mystery of the kingdom and what it means practically. So we're praying for one another. When we're interceding according to that prayer, when we're engaged in high praise, we are powerful. In the second chapter, we are called to remember. So all of this is related. This isn't something disjointed from chapter 1 or 3, as we'll see. But chapter 2 is a bridge. We are called to remember. We're called to give high praise. We're called to intercede. We're called to remember always that we used to be dead, but now we're alive. Okay, that's the testimony of Ephesians 2. But further, okay, as, as the old creation... That used to be dead. And now we remember by grace we've been made alive. But also the bulk of Ephesians 2 tells us. You weren't just dead as an individual. But you and I were completely disconnected from God's family. 
And in order to be made alive again, we're not just brought up from the dead spiritually, but we're reconnected into the global family in Messiah. So we must remember that. Right? We must keep it in our minds to be powerful people. We were formerly disconnected from the commonwealth of Israel. Right? And now in Messiah, it's Messianic Israel. They're the firstborn ethnic family of God's global family that he is working to recreate. And our worldview should match that. And we should be thankful as we're remembering we've been plugged back into a covenant family. That's what this whole thing is all about. Being restored as humans means uh, the family must be restored. The whole point of this epistle, okay, to say it all, to tip my hand, to fast forward, and then we'll back up again. I mean, it's the whole point is that God has this eternal purpose to unite all nations in Messiah. Doesn't mean everyone will be saved. But from every tribe, kindred, and tongue, there will be a remnant, there will be a representation. In the end, all of the nation of Israel will be saved. And this global family will be reconvened and connected as kindred spirit uh, in Messiah. That's the eternal purpose. That's not dead doctrine. That is biblical truth. The basis upon which should uh, be our churches. Okay, we meet as families... Not just because that's like a a nice thing to do or even because we realize scripturally church is family and that's true. But but it's not just that family is what the church is. It's that this this global purpose is God's eternal purpose. And this whole letter to the Ephesians is telling us, look, all y'all should have this vision. That's what Paul's saying. It's like I've been given grace to carry it, which is what Ephesians 3 is about. That's what Paul's saying. I've been given grace to carry it, but I'm giving it to you. You all need this vision. It's not for the theologian in the ivory tower. It's for all of us moms, dads, singles, cousins, kids, uh, on every level, wherever we're from, whatever it is, whoever we are, we all should have a vision of God's eternal purpose. And on that basis, we should love one another like family. Don't turn the church into something you attend, into a company, into a franchise, be a fervent family right here on the ground, even among the four of you, the eight of you, the 20 of you, whatever it is, even among you all, bring to pass the eternal purpose because you see the larger vision, bring it into your group and then spread it to others. In light of that, not just because it's your Christian duty to love one another and reach the world, but because you have a vision of God's eternal purpose and that's what urges us, fuels us, motivates us to do it. We're all supposed to have that vision. It's not just the teachers and the theologians. And too often they, they can articulate some of these things but not live it. We're the ones supposed to have the vision and we're supposed to live it out. Right on. So that brings us to chapter 3. Right? Chapter 1, we're called to high praise and intercession. Chapter 2, we're called to remember where we were and what God's vision is with Israel and the nations in Messiah. Right? Now in chapter 3, we are called to become apostolic stewards of the mystery. Yeah, big words, but it's all there in our Bibles. Uh, Maybe I'm making the adjective apostolic stewards kind of thing. But uh, by the way, that doesn't mean we're all supposed to be apostles. It just means that the apostolic vision from Scripture, we should get hold of from a a fundamental level and steward it. So that's going to be the main theme. But uh, with that being said... We're going to read uh, Ephesians chapter 3. So, by the way, just out of curiosity, how many of you have on your smartphone, now that I said that, the translation? Evan and Faith. (laughs) (laughs) Chad did too? You got it there? Okay. So anyway, you don't have to have it. You could look at your own version. Oh, there's a few of you now. You're coming forward. Oh, there's no internet. But your your data, well, whatever. You You don't have to. You don't have to have internet. Well, the version is the Happy Rock version. But you could read from your own version. But if you get the email from King's people, I sent a link. If you have connection, you can get it. But I sent it to you guys so you have it at home. And I'll, I have to update it, so I'll just send it out. So you could read along with whatever version you want. Just listen closely. Uh, so Ephesians 3, 
verse 1 and onward. You ready? Okay. So because of this, I, Paul, the Messiah's captive on behalf of you Gentiles, if indeed you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was entrusted to me for you, and, and forgive the pause, but that concept of stewardship is our main focus point. So I'll read that again. He, he interrupts himself. By the way, he was starting to pray, it seems, because he re, uh, he, well, he comes back around to this, because of this, I, several verses later, then he drops to his knees and begins a prayer. But here he is leading into the prayer. He's almost interrupting himself saying, okay, before I pray about this vision again in chapter three, here's something I need to say about apostolic ministry and what it means for the church. I'm the Messiah's captive on behalf of you Gentiles. By the way, that's figurative and literal. He's in prison writing this. Which gives you an idea of the flavor of Paul's stewardship. He's given himself, he's surrendered completely to the kingdom and his job in the kingdom. It's all his life is about. Right? His stewardship is not a compartment of his life. And I get into that. I have a level of commitment to it, but I also have commitments to other things. No, Paul's stewardship was not a commitment. He was surrendered. So that's the vibe that's coming out of Ephesians 3. That's the vibe that now we're getting more into the warfare issue. Because it requires stewardship like biblical stewardship. Which is full surrender to Jesus, his kingdom and his purpose. So this is, you know, for someone like Paul who, you know, met Jesus on the Damascus Road and then just gave himself wholeheartedly to Jesus. Everything else dead, right? Philippians 3, everything else that I held dear is refuse compared to the treasure of knowing Jesus and to be found in him, right? So for someone like that or who, so, for someone who lives in a more apocalyptic environment, you know, where they're persecuted for their faith and it's dangerous just to believe in Jesus, let alone go to a meeting where they have to keep watch. Or, you know, if you're baptized, you're marked. You know, any day could be your last day. You know, life is more on the edge. It's apocalyptic. Uh, Coming to Jesus and serving him is not something you do as a compartment. It's like you're all in or you're not in at all. That's more of Paul's mentality. So for us to prepare for battle, we have to get some of these vibes in us. We can't pretend... That these vibes of full surrender don't exist. Where it's all or nothing with Jesus. We can't pretend that's not the case. We can enjoy our freedoms and we're supposed to. First Timothy chapter 2. You know, to live a quiet and, and uh, what is it? A, a quiet of life, a, a godly life in quietness and humility. I forget what it says. But the point is so that we can have freedom in our culture to proclaim the gospel. Right? So we enjoy that. All the smirking at me for messing it up on the spot. Good. We needed the levity. What's that? Yeah, the wrong. That's the wrong. The wrong happy rock version. But um, we need this. With our freedoms, we're very tempted to live compartmentalized lives rather than surrender to Jesus and all for the stewardship of this mystery, which is what, what I'm claiming Ephesians 3 is about. So this stewardship, if you heard of it, it's the stewardship of God's grace in verse 2 that was entrusted to me for you, Paul says, that during an unveiling, the mystery was made known to me. As I wrote above briefly, which when you read that carefully, you'll be able to grasp my insight into the mystery of the Messiah which in other generations was not made known to the children of humanity, as it now has been unveiled to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, which is, the Gentiles are co-heirs and co-body members and co-partners of the promise in Messiah Jesus through the gospel. Of which I've become a servant in accordance with the entrustment of God's grace that was entrusted to me according to the exertion of his power. To me, 
the very least of all the holy ones, this grace was entrusted to announce the gospel of the Messiah's unfathomable wealth to the Gentiles and to illuminate for everyone the stewardship of the mystery which has been concealed for ages within the God who created all things. So that now the multifaceted wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly regions through the church. According to the purpose of the ages, which he formulated in the Messiah, Jesus, our Lord. In whom we possess the courage and confident access through faith in him. That is why I plead with you not to be disheartened by my afflictions on your behalf, which are, in fact, your glory. So I'm going to read the prayer at the end, but I I want to draw our attention again to what is at stake, to the magnitude of what it means to steward the mystery. It's like this is what life is about to take the character of God and what he did in Messiah and embody it in a church so that the powers of the air can see it. That's why Paul's writing Ephesians to bring this wisdom and hopefully impartation to the churches and the church of Ephesus and the other cities that receive this letter so that they'll have a conviction and say, "Okay, this is why we exist. It's not for ourselves. It's to embody this mystery. Everybody does his part, her part to embody this mystery, to make proclamation to the powers of the air. Or we completely miss our purpose because this is God's one purpose. I mean, God is eternal. He knows all things. He's almighty. He's from everlasting to everlasting. Uh, all knowledge is his. He's extremely complex. He, he dwells in unapproachable light. And yet he has one purpose. And he showed us what it is and says, join me in this purpose. We should share his one purpose. You know what that, per- th- that purpose looks like on this side of eternity? It looks like the church that Jesus and the apostles uh, describe. That's his purpose. That church as family on mission. That church is his purpose. It's why we evangelize. It's why we make disciples is to embody Messiah and reveal the mystery to the nations. And even when you know people love us or hate us, we're revealing the mystery and the powers of the air get the message because they're the ones Jesus conquered and he wants them to see what he's done in full color. They know they're defeated. It's finished. But what exactly did you do? What's the nature of your defeat? Well, let me unveil my church for you and show you powers of the air. You are overcome. Look what he's done. That humanity whose authority in the garden you tried to usurp. The image of God in whom you tried to destroy. Look at them now. Look what the death of this young man Jesus has done. And when they cultivate this together, which is why we have scripture. When they try to cultivate this and they they begin to grow and mature, which is the theme of Ephesians 4. Embody this mystery. Look at what has happened. Look what Jesus has done. Look at what you've lost. Look at what you think you replaced. You are doomed. So we're putting this in your face and we're going to make significance out of this people until Jesus returns. We are at war. We cannot pretend that these truths don't exist and that we're called to steward these mysteries together. Not the people on the platform, us. If we give, if we express a, a, a carnal and human uh, human wisdom of what the church is, then we fail to to blast the message of, of what God looks like to the powers of the air. We, we cannot fail. See, what, what we've endeavored to do, what we're trying to be an apostolic people. It's, it's its own thing. We're trying to be an apostolic people. We, we've stepped into a um, a plan that's bigger than us. And there's requirements for that. So in verse 14, because of all this, Paul says, I bend my knees toward the father from whom every family in the heavens and on earth receives its name. And again, there's another picture of the heavenly and earthly population. 
Right? He mentioned before the rulers and authorities. There are angelic beings. Some have fallen. Others are loyal to the Lord. There are families in the heavens and families on the earth. That in verse 16, that he, the, 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 the father from whom all these families derive their name, that he would grant you according to the wealth of his splendor to be fortified with power through his spirit in the inner person. That the Messiah would reside in your hearts through faith, having been rooted and founded in love so that you might be strengthened to grasp with all the holy ones what is the width, length, height and depth and to know the love of the Messiah, a love that far surpasses knowledge that you would be filled to all the fullness of God. Now to the one powerful enough to perform excessively beyond everything we request or imagine, according to the same power at work in us, to him be the splendor in the church and in Messiah Jesus, to all the generations in all the ages. Amen. So again, we see Paul praying that we would have the inner ability by the Spirit to grasp this mystery. So that we would be motivated to yield ourselves to God's purpose in the church because of this great plan that we have in our spirit on a convictional level. Not just because we think it's the right thing to do. And it's not just because we're tired of the institutional church. To have that, to have this kind of critical attitude misses the whole point. Now we may have to make the distinction prophetically. You know, that may have to happen in order to help illustrate what is and what isn't. And especially mature church can do that well. But we don't do this out of criticism, out of contradistinction. This is what we're not. We don't do this. We don't do that. Well, we're not interested in that. What we're interested is we see the eternal purpose and it has apprehended us. So we have to live a certain way. That's what Paul's praying for in that prayer. That's what I want us to be. Are we different? Yes, unfortunately. But to heaven, we're just trying to be normal. So big whoop if we're different from the way other people do things. I want to see a vision that grips me and I'm infected by this thing and I can't help but now live this culture out and want to share it with you and vice versa. That's who we want to be right there. We want to be heavenly minded so that we can be nothing but earthly good. We need to get it from heaven and live it on the earth. That's what drives us to do what we do. That's why we're committed to one another. We love one another. We share the spirit. We break bread. We spend time. We connect. And we, from that power of love embodied, we reach out to our community. That's why we do that and try to do that and aspire to do that better. That's why. Because we see the eternal uh, vision. The vision of the eternal purpose. And to be to see that, to be motivated by that, and to make it practical, that is what I would call apostolic. So a few more comments now. We are in a battle. We are already in spiritual warfare. We're preparing for a specific victory. But we're in a battle. We've been feeling it in particular lately. With a a lot of these illnesses and other kinds of struggles and weird things happening. Some of them have the, the kind of like the feel of eeriness to them. Some of them feel like just everyday life. But guys, we live in a, in an environment that's first spiritual and then it's natural. We are at war and we've been feeling it with particular force lately. And we don't just want to be able to say that. We also want to overcome. Amen. But we are in a spiritual battle. All right. We have to embrace a biblical worldview. That life is first spiritual and then it's natural. And those things are interrelated, but the spirit realm carries the influence and the power. That's a biblical worldview. The Bible does not articulate the confession. Jesus is Lord in a natural context. Jesus is Lord in a supernatural context. That means there are fallen angels... That exert a lot of influence over our world. From the highest ranking fallen ones. To the lowest foot soldiers. They're in unison. Not because of love. But because of necessity. And to accomplish their plan. They're in unison. They're terrible. They're evil. And they're completely given. To opposing God's plan. And opposing his people. Night and day it's all they do. It's all they do. 
That's what we're in. Let me tell you something. At the, in, in the, the, the conception, birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, they are all defeated. They are all disarmed. And according to Colossians 1, Ephesians 4, they've been paraded around the universe in the spirit, having been made captives to King Jesus. He's Lord over them all. That's what that means. The biblical Jewish and what we should embrace, the new covenant, multi-ethnic view, is that the world is spiritual. There's a lot of bad spirits and Jesus has conquered them. That's what he means when he says at the Great Commission, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He's a human, he's the human, and he's the Lord fully of both realms, and we share that dominion with him. So we're victorious, but we are in an environment where these powers are there. There's there's things that inspire sicknesses and diseases. There are things that inspire arguments and feelings of self-justification when we want to hold in anger and not forgive. We are at war. Those aren't petty little human emotions or just the situations that we see when we get that dark little attitude and we're, we're going to lock in. Man, there are spirits at work that are trying to infiltrate the people of God. They're not compartmentalized. They got one mission. So biblical worldview, we have to embrace it. We're at war. The nature of the warfare, however, is not that we all have to go around rebuking the devil. There are times we are led into confrontation. But for the most part, we yield to God, we trust him, we obey him, and we fulfill his will, which is what these scriptures, the wisdom of Ephesians, is teaching us to do, right? I'm going through the Bible uh, for the year. Are any of you reading the Bible through in a year yeah. by chance? I, I, yeah, me too. I'm doing it chronologically, seeing how I like that anyway. So I'm only on Exodus but I noticed how the Lord, as he's about to deliver his people, and then when he does, he refers to them as his host. And the, the word there refers to a military host, an army. And I thought that was interesting because at this point, it's not Joshua's generation. They're not fighting anyone. They're just going, okay, <laughs> just go along, do what they say. In fact, at one point, He says, you know, Yahweh will fight for you while you remain silent. But they still had to trust him. They had to do what he said, keeping the Passover, the unleavened bread, sacrifice of the lambs, putting it on the doorposts, you know, requesting the the Egyptians for their gold and silver. That was the that was their job. You know, it says, I'm going to give you favor. Request. Of the families of Egypt, their gold and silver. Because we need that. We need that offering for the, the tabernacle when we get in the wilderness. And um, and then when it, the Egyptians wanted to get rid of them, it says the Lord gave them favor in the Egyptians' eyes. So they gave them a lot of wealth. So they requested and they gave them the wealth. And then it says, thus Israel plundered the Egyptians. <laughs> So it didn't sound like plundering. It sounded like asking. And we just, fine, take it, take it and go. But that was an act of warfare. They were plundering. Because there was war in the heavens. Yahweh was going against these gods of Egypt, man. That's what was happening in the heavenly realm. When he touches the Nile, when he touches Pharaoh's firstborn. These were viewed as God, God-like entities. Let alone the magicians and their staffs and things. It was all spiritual. Right? It says in Isaiah, when the Lord's going to judge a particular nation, he says, my sword will be satiated in the heavens, and then it will come down to the earth. It's like when I go to judge a nation, I go after the princes that are unseen first. Foom, foom, foom. He battles them. He brings them down. And then he goes on the earth, and he brings judgment there. He, he, he deals with both realms at the same time. So this was his army. Now, they just had to do what he said. We keep the Passover. We trust the Lord. We follow him out. You know, we endure these ten plagues. We plunder the Egyptians. We ask for their wealth. But that was spiritual warfare for us. We were his army. 
And then we walk through the Red Sea or, or whatever it looked like. And God's the one who opened the sea and God's the one who closed it down on the Egyptians. But this is my army. They've plundered the Egyptians and they're victorious because I'm victorious. We're at war. But the bulk of our warfare is just giving our souls to the things the Lord told us to do. From a a perspective of apostolic wisdom. Hence, our trek through Ephesians. So Paul speaks of his own apostolic ministry. That's the the next thing I want to talk about here. I have uh, a few points now from Ephesians 3, what we already read. And one of the things that Paul points out there, okay, in my teaching tonight. um, Yeah, we're at a good place. We're 30 minutes in. I'm just going to take another 20 minutes or so. Don't do that. Paul uh, talks about his own apostolic ministry. He has an amazing testimony of grace because the Lord met him on the Damascus Road. But we have to realize that God had a plan there. That he wasn't just saving a soul, but he was choosing a man who would carry his mysteries. Even when Paul was like wickedly unsaved, like persecuting the church. Paul was the kind of person that if you get a hold of his life, he's going to give himself wholeheartedly and be responsible for whatever the Lord of heaven and earth puts in his lap. And that's the man Paul became. It's like, I'm all in. I see Jesus, you, you know, you have, uh, you've given me a commission. I'm going to fulfill that commission, right? So again, that's the vibe that's coming from Ephesians 3 to help us equip, uh, get equipped for battle, right? Um, yeah, if you'll notice, like if you go back and read Acts 9 when Jesus meets Paul, he was called Saul at, in that story, his Jewish name. There's not a lot of dialogue about leading him to the Lord. There's not a prayer of, what do you call that? The sinner's prayer. He's just like, appear, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Get up, it will be shown you what to do. Either the very carefully planned altar call, where maybe some of the other soldiers first came forward to encourage Paul, was skipped. It's like, who wants to come forward? And then you have people in the crowd strategically get up to make them feel more comfortable. (laughs) Then they come forward. None of that. It's not even mentioned. It's like, you know, blazing glory, trumpet blast. Here's what you will do. Okay, who are you? I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. And then he's commissioned. (laughs) So there's no dialogue on you. Do you plan on repenting and believing? Now, don't get me wrong. Okay, Jesus didn't force himself on Paul. He absolutely had a choice. Of course he did. He absolutely had a choice. But the fact that he chose the Lord was not given a lot of attention because Paul had the mentality of a steward. He says as much in 1 Corinthians 9. And Jesus knew what he was getting. And he had a destiny for that young man to carry major information to the nations that not even the other apostles quite had a grasp of. I'm not saying Paul was better. The 12 were very unique and special. They were the foundation of a new nation in the spirit. Paul was not one of the 12. But he still had a commission that, that gave him a grasp of the gospel and the mystery that was greater than the others. And Jesus knew what he was doing when he took hold of Paul. That's my point. Right? I mean, think about the depth of this. Let me just pause here, kind of a slight detour. Think about the significance of this. What Jesus says to Saul, which is his Jewish name. Paul is his Roman name. They both applied to him. Though at one point in the narrative of Acts, it switches from Saul to Paul and stays Paul. That's in Acts 13. Anyway, he says he appears... To Saul. And listen to the depth of this. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Think of the Old Testament background. The depth of this. Saul. 
Saul. Do you remember another Saul in the Old Testament? Right? And what tribe was King Saul from? It was the tribe of Benjamin. This Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. And the Old Testament Saul chased the anointed king to pursue him, to persecute him. Remember the madness of King Saul demonized and chasing King David, the true anointed king. So that the pursuit is still there. Why are you persecuting me? The word persecute in Greek means to pursue. Paul uses it later, ironically. I'll get to that in a second. You hear it's it's like, why do these Saul dudes always chase after to kill the David dudes? Okay, that's kind of a modern way of interpreting paraphrasing, right? But if you'll also remember in the madness of King Saul against David, there was a couple of moments where Saul had his wits about him when David clearly proved that he was not worthy to be persecuted. He was not really personally a threat to Saul. You know, David pointed out, I could have killed you a couple of times. I didn't because you're the Lord's anointed. Why do you come and you chase after a little flea like me? There's no reason to do this. And at one point at En Gedi, when David had cut a piece off of Saul's robe, when he had gone into the cave to go potty. And David clearly had a moment to take out his enemy. And he just cut off a piece of the robe to show him later and said, I could have taken your head off. Okay, I'm a man of honor. I'm innocent. And Saul says, Saul has a moment of sobriety. He says, uh, you are more righteous than I. You will be king. And then he says this, make a covenant with me. That you won't cut off my name from Israel. And David made the covenant. And the Lord Jesus honored that covenant when he met Saul on the Damascus road. Another Saul from Benjamin. And he, you know, you're, you can't be king. You won't be king. The king is a, a David's son now. Saul's lost the dynasty. But I'm going to take this Saul honoring the covenant of David and make you a kingdom man. An apostle who carries my mysteries. And that's the Saul who became Paul. It's like, I used to be a Saul. Now I'm Paul. I'm a follower of the king. He kept this covenant. I was the man that he chose, a man named Saul. Now I carry the mysteries of the kingdom to the nations. What a privilege and what a good Lord. You know, when Paul talks about following Jesus in Philippians 3 and valuing Jesus. And he says, I put everything else away uh, to, 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 to get hold of Jesus. And I haven't obtained it yet, but I press on. That word there is the same word for pursue and persecute. It's used negatively in some context. Paul uses it as a play on words. And he says, I used to pursue the Lord in one way, to persecute. Now I, same word, persecute. The word is dioko. I used to dioko the Lord. Now I dioko the Lord. I'm still running after him, but it's all for different reasons. It's this Paul's wisdom that we're looking at in Ephesians. Because his apostolic ministry was at once unique. And it was the beginning of a whole new release of apostolic ministry in the earth. The Ephesians four apostles are after the image of Paul's apostolic ministry. Maybe not all apostles that are since Paul will carry that kind of integration of knowledge and wisdom and revelation and missionary zeal and toughness and strength and persecution. A pastor, a missionary, a theologian. I mean, he was an amazing human being. But he defined basically the apostolic role from here on out. And it's nothing like what human wisdom calls apostolic ministry in our generation. We call apostles the main leaders of big ministry companies. That is precisely what an apostle is not by Paul's definition. Paul's definition of apostles, though there may be seasons where they have prominence, they are basement dwellers. They are servants who are underneath infusing church with their DNA in the way they plant or care for already planted Churches, Apostles are the sole gift of the five that give DNA to the church with particular authority. Prophets do so as partners, but they're second. The one gaping hole in much of Western Christianity is the lack of apostolic ministry. Without them, listen, God 
will, God will not circumvent his word to just make things okay in spite of our missing his word. If we don't have apostles planting and defining churches, and we call another kind of ministry apostolic, God's not just going to magically say, oh, who cares whether or not you're embracing this kind of wisdom? Just do what you feel led to do. Do what works and I'll bless it. He doesn't operate that way. What's my point? We endeavor to be apostolic or we won't have power to confront this entity that God's calling us to confront. We must be apostolic stewards. We must carry the DNA that Paul writes about. We must have the vision in our hearts, which is what we're constantly praying about, and then acting it out in the way we relate to one another, God, the lost, our city, and whatever else we have to deal with. Okay? A bit of an anticlimactic moment to that little speech I just gave, but the content is important. What is this mystery? What we've already said. The mystery is that God are always planned to recreate humanity. That it wasn't just going to be Israel, but Israel was going to be a light to the nations. And Messianic Israel would reach the other nations and say, come on in, you're in the family now, if you believe. You can be as covenantal as we are. You'll worship one God, you're going to walk in the ways of the Spirit, but you'll be marked the way we're marked. Not by circumcision, but by the Holy Spirit. You'll be covenant people. That's the, the, what, what makes that a mystery? Because it's what God was always after. It was always the plan. Before it was like, you got to make a distinction. It was another text like that in my recent reading. It, it, it was the celebration of the Passover. Okay, the foreigner that's in your midst, that's serving like a hired hand or something, they can't, they can't have Passover. They're not in the covenant. There's got to be inside and outside. There's no gray area, right? Now, if you have people that want to join you and they get circumcised, they got to be circumcised. They join the covenant. I'll let them in. They can celebrate Passover. They could be, you know, one of you in a sense. But if they're among you working or whatever, they're, they're a foreigner and they're not in the covenant, they can't have Passover with you. There's a distinction. There's in and there's out. The seraphim cry out to one another, holy, holy, holy. There's a border, And now Paul gets struck by this revelation. He's like, man, this isn't just for Israel. The Messiah has come and he wants to be the king of the nations. So we're going to run to them. And if they believe, they come in just like we Jews who believed came in. And and in fact, that's what God was always after. That's the mystery which we read about. Now, here's why this is spiritual and supernatural. The powers of the air rule the nations. Right. In the Old Testament, Yahweh ruled Israel. That nation had the one God who was God. The other nations worshipped idols behind which were fallen angels. So the fallen angels rebelled against Yahweh, so they inherit fallen nations and vice versa. And these powers of the air keep the nations in darkness and wickedness. Now that they've all been conquered at the cross, Paul and people like Paul can run to the nations and say, the Messiah King is for you too. And then the people leave their allegiance, their old allegiance, they come out from under the the, the tyranny of the old God, which was really a fallen angel, but they call them gods. They come out from under that and come under the, the rulership of Jesus. And now the one spirit they have is the Holy Spirit. And the one Lord they have is the Lord Jesus. And the one God they have is God the Father. Even Gentiles can have this. And then these, these family units are made that embody the kingdom. Are you hearing what I'm saying? These family units are made where the rulers in the heavens no longer rule those people. They become little colonies of Yahweh's dominion. Even in Mexico and Puerto Rico and Italy and even in Iraq and China and America, the nation of immigrants. God bless the USA in that way. May the church come out from under the dominion of these powers with all the traditions And come under the dominion of King Jesus. We endeavor to be apostolic people. 
the way we behave on the ground and conduct ourselves and constitute church counts toward the heavens. If we just join the whole fray of company-based organizations, we're not fully coming out from under the powers of the air. So our spiritual warfare, you know, you can't just do whatever you want and then go to a hill and start rebuking the powers of darkness. We have to live a certain way. That's the mystery. The people who are like this, they they see it and they say, oh, okay, I'm I'm going to line up with that. I'm going to do that. That's what we want. That's 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 the strength of our house churches, the vision of the eternal purpose that gives us meaning why we do things a certain way. So then when we solve this problem quickly and we release and we forgive and we bless and we love, we just we won't let you in. We're not letting you in. We're a colony of heaven. We're not letting these dark forces in. So, having said all that, here is the key to manifest and establish the mystery of the church. Here's the key. Apostolic stewardship. I already told you, so you already knew. So there wasn't a big surprise. Apostolic stewardship. We must be stewards of the mystery. We're called to stewardship. So for a few moments, I'm going to talk about stewardship. Paul uses the term, I think, twice in that passage. It's an important term to him. It's always been an important term to me. Stewardship is the meaning of life. So you can see why I think it's important. Because I also think it's the meaning of life. We have to learn what stewardship is and what being a good steward is all about. Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 4... Um, that this is what's required of stewards. Or what does he say? He says, um, we are assistants of the Messiah and stewards of the mysteries of God. And this is what's required of stewards, that they be faithful. Okay, that they're loyal to the master. And here's where Paul's coming from. He's coming from Jesus' story about the stewards. Jesus' story about the stewards. That's a steward's story. In Matthew 25, now we're not going to turn there. But if you want to write down the reference for later perusing or reading, you could talk about it with the children tonight. Maybe you could do this instead of watching the Super Bowl today. Or you could wait till after if you want. I mean, I'm not the boss of you. But I've already read it, so I'm free. It's Matthew 25, verses 14, I think, through 30. And you're familiar with the story. There's a master who's going away on a journey. It says for a long time. So he calls three of his servants whom he calls stewards. Now a steward, the Greek word is oikonomos. You're like, what? Well, it's the word from which we get economy. And economy is a reference to the wealth and resources of a country or a region and the system and the way it operates in production versus consumption, etc. I'm not an economist, but I know that. Okay. But that's only one aspect of biblical stewardship. Uh, the, 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 the compound word oikonomos means the law of the house or the rule over a house. Because uh, in the ancient world, just life was built on households, on families. So a large estate in particular, the father was called the Lord also, not big L, but small L. The kurios, like Jesus is Lord. That's a household term, as well as having, of course, Old Testament references to God. Anyway, you know when Jesus says, the servant, no, what does he say? He says, um, whoever's a, whoever's a, whoever is, whoever sins is a slave to sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son does remain. So whomever the son sets free is free indeed. What he, what he means is a household consists of of the father, of the mother, of the children, and of the servants, and other hired people. Okay? The servants are not heirs to the father. But the, the children, especially the firstborn son, he is the heir. So if the son makes a servant into a son, then that son is free from slavery and becomes an heir, becomes a son. It's, it's, it's the mentality of a household. So God has a household where Jesus is the master of it as the older son. And we are children, but also stewards in the household because the steward is not like any other slave. You have slaves and you have stewards. Stewards are still slaves 
in an ancient household. Because the master still owns them, but they're given tremendous responsibility of oversight. They're really managers. They work for the owner, but they work with a certain level of latitude and freedom to run a section of the household, which can also be a section of the family business. In modern parlance, they would be managers. That's another way to translate that word. Stewards have authority. They're not micromanaged. And they're not just told, do this, do that, do this. They're, set, they're given, in this case, in this parable, they're given wealth to work with and or they're given responsibility. And here's your job and here's the goal for that much of the company. Go deal with it. Go get that for me. So there's a certain privilege there. There's freedom. Certain stewards who were owned by masters had greater freedom than some poor folk who were free in the ancient world. It could be a very noble thing to be and to do in that day and age. So this master has three stewards. He gives one five talents. A talent is a measure of wealth. We get our word talent from this, by the way. But it means something different in our modern usage. A talent was a measure of wealth that was worth approximately... Uh, a million bucks in modern money. So this was a great deal of money. Even the guy who gets only one talent gets almost a million dollars. Like in the 900,000s. So the first steward gets five talents. The second one gets two, if I remember right. See, I think I read it. I did read it. And the, the last one gets one. What's that? There is two versions of it. I'm telling the Matthew version. Because they're called stewards, right? So... This, you know what happens, the first steward invests his money and gets a return. And the master is pleased. He gets five more talents. The second one gets two more. And then the last one, you remember the third steward, right? The third steward is not our model steward. (laughs) He comes up the same way the other two presented themselves. He comes up and he said, Master, I knew you to be a harsh man. Reaping where he does not sow and gathering where he does not scatter seed. And I was afraid of you. So I went away and I buried your talent in the ground. And now look, here you have what's yours. And he gives him back the original talent. And the master said, you wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I was a harsh man? Who used his stewards just for his own selfish gain? Then you should have invested my money. In other words, uh, you said it with your own mouth. If I'm an abuser and I'm just using you, then why weren't you afraid enough to work for me? Who do you think you are to just give me back what I originally gave you? Why didn't you do what I told you to do? Now you and I, listen to this. We know good and well the master's not harsh, he's good. You look at those first two stewards, right? They invested the money. They got dividends back for the master. But the master then brought them into his joyous inheritance. He gave them way more than they gave him. He was just wanting to see if they were going to be faithful. He was setting them up for success. He wasn't using them. He was letting them use him. It's like, just be faithful with this. Oh, you got five million more dollars. Oh, good for you, little guy. This is a billionaire. Because I know how to manage money. I could do this myself. I just wanted to know that I had a son-like steward. You did well. You're faithful. Come on in and enjoy owning like several cities. Our master is generous and good and kind. Only setting us up for success. The thought that he's using us is a joke. It's the exact opposite. He's like, take advantage of my generosity. Just be faithful. I'll give beyond your wildest dreams. I'll give beyond what you deserve. But be faithful. He's good. But why doesn't he defend himself to the bad steward? Why doesn't he say, man, you misunderstood me. I was just setting you up for success. You're blind. You're foolish. I was good. I was wanting to give you more. No, he said, what you're saying isn't good enough. Even if I am harsh, you still should have been a good steward. Why? Because stewards are stewards. And masters are masters. And you never change that equation. Let me put it to you this way. The fact that the master was harsh, abusive, and manipulative, which he wasn't, but even if he were, 
That doesn't change the identity of the steward. He's still a steward. The fact that the master was supposedly taking advantage of the steward does not give the steward the right to change the rules. Oh, well, since you're so harsh, I decided to do something different than you told me to do. And the master's like, excuse me, I'm the master, you're the steward. If I'm so bad and I gave you a task, the harsher I am, you should have been working a lot harder. But the, the steward thinks, well, if, if he treats me unfair, I get to change my identity and become the master. Think of, think of what he did. He, he, first of all, he says, um, I knew you to be a harsh man, which is a completely inaccurate view of the gracious master. The second thing he did was he said, uh, reaping where you did not sow. So you're taking advantage. Okay, that's more of that. And then he says, I was afraid. So that's, that's one of the characteristics of poor stewardship uh, to operate out of fear. And then he says, um, I was afraid, so I went away and hid your talent. Um, in other words, I'm trying to avoid the abuse of the bad master, which means another characteristic of poor stewardship, being a poor steward, is a victim mentality. Which also does what? Blames others. I knew you to be a harsh man. I was afraid of your abuse because you have the record of abusing. So I did the only thing I could do. He paints himself then as the hero. Victim, hero, fear, blaming, all poor virtues. Bad stewardship. All of it avoids this one perfect reality. That stewards are stewards and masters are masters. And that's just the way it is. Good stewardship means, okay, we know we are stewards. God gives us a tremendous amount of freedom. His leadership and rulership, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Amen? He is not harsh. He's gracious. He's empowering. He's patient. He's the one who teaches us how to be good stewards. He's not a manipulative micromanager, but he's still the master. And we're still stewards. We don't have a choice of whether or not we should be stewarding these apostolic mysteries. It's who we are. It doesn't matter if other people have a different concept of Christianity. You all don't now. And neither do I. We are stewards with one mission. To invest his talents into his eternal purpose. Not our version of it. His, the building of apostolic Christianity on the work, uh, on the earth through the works of God, that's our stewardship. We don't have another stewardship. We have different gifts, but we have one central goal, and it's to establish His kingdom on earth through an embodied, uh, an embodiment of God, which is the church. That's our stewardship. That's who we are. Right? When Paul said, remember when Paul said, First um, Corinthians nine. I'll close with this. Okay, in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul said that um, I, I don't have anything to boast about if I preach the gospel. Because woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Listen to what he said. He said, if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. Which is exactly what Jesus' parable teaches us. But he says, if I don't do it voluntarily, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. In other words, if Jesus appears to me and says, I'm Jesus, you thought because I died on the cross, I was cursed. Well, I was cursed for your sins, but now I'm alive from the dead. And this is the way it is now. I'm I'm on a journey. I'm not going to come and set up my kingdom in your day. I'm going to have you run to the nations with my message and you're going to be persecuted for. Paul could say, I really don't like that. I don't like this idea. You were cursed in public, but you resurrected in private, except for 500 people. I'm not into that. I would want you to prove yourself to the world. And now you're leaving me with your spirit so that when I go preaching, perform miracles, make disciples, plant churches, I'm going to get persecuted. I'm going to get thrown in jail. I'm not into that. I don't like your way of being Messiah. I don't like this idea where we do this now and then later we awaken into glory and there's no more suffering. I don't like that. So Paul could say that, but then he would have to tell himself, but I'm a steward. I'm not the Lord. It's like, I, I can't. Like, I okay, don't get me wrong. Technically, I can choose no. 
But that's not Paul's mentality. He had a different worldview. He's like, as a good Jew kind of thing, he's like, he's God, I'm man. I'm a steward. That's what we are. I can't say no. I mean, I can, but I can't. Right? I can't say no. I can't suicide my way out of this. Because that's poor stewardship. I, I, can't, I can't just run. I, I got to do it. Like Jeremiah tried to get out of it. It's like, I, 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 I got fire in my bones. It's like, I, I'm a steward of these mysteries. I can't just hang it up and decide for myself. Like, I'm the master of my own destiny. Politically, we all have unalienable, un, uh, uh, inalienable rights. To, endowed by our creator to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Is that right? Yes, sir. I believe that politically. But in the kingdom, he's the God, I'm the man. I'm a steward. If he puts something on me, that's just the way it is. Now, he's no dictator. He's no tyrant. There's nothing better. There's no government better than his government. But still, that doesn't change that he's the God, I'm the man. He's the Lord, we're the stewards. Right? Howie Morgan used to say... When, when the Lord spoke to Moses and said, I am, that implies you're not. <laughs> it's just the way life is. You can't get out of it. And it's the best possible option anyway, because Paul says, I do it voluntarily. Because I know from Jesus' parable, I'm getting a reward. I'm going to inherit like five universes for doing my piddly little bit. He says in Romans 8, this light affliction, 2 Corinthians 5 also, this momentary light affliction is worth an eternal weight of glory. So as I'm closing with my last point, I'll add this one bit to my last point. Stewards see the return of the master and look for that reward then, not the one we get now. That's the key. Jesus' parable of the steward, stewards, was his second to last parable, his second to last teaching at all in Matthew's gospel, the one right before judgment. He's trying to help us, giving us a, a really good, like a, a total cheat sheet for the last test. I'm telling you, I'm coming back. Invest my talents. I have one purpose. Invest your talents into this fully. And when you come back, I will give you way more than you earned for me. Way more. I'm trying to set you up for success. I want you to shine. I want you to be incandescent in eternal glory. Because that's where you're going. You're not going just into retirement. One day you will die. You will pass on. And then you'll be raised from the dead and stand before the judge. And then you will be be rewarded For your works done in the body. Good stewards have a vision of the future and reward. And that motivates our hearts now. That's apostolic stewardship. It gives us the energy to give everything to the one purpose of the one God who's so gracious to us to share these things with us. So, Father, we thank you with all of our hearts. We we can't. Just like Mike said, we can't hype up our emotions, the depth of our gratitude and our joy. And I don't even know if I can give a prayer of thanksgiving that's worthy of the way I feel right now, of of what I see you've done for us graciously. So I I just say that we humble ourselves and we yield ourselves in prayer the best we know how. And we ask you, Lord, To change our lives with a vision of the eternal reward and of our call to stewardship. I I fear and tremble when I think about the, the, the level of surrender that I see in these heroes of the faith. Like a Paul, like some of the other martyrs. Lord, sometimes we use our freedoms for our own selfishness rather than for your glory. And so I'm just asking for mercy for all of us and for help that you will do a new thing in our hearts, in our churches, in our city, along the lines of apostolic mystery and stewardship. 
Teach us how to be good stewards. Don't let us be overwhelmed in a carnal way. Don't let us be underwhelmed in a carnal way. Just hit us right between the eyes with the Spirit. Energize us. Give us vision and give us help to deepen and expand this work because it's your purpose. Lord, we are so thankful to be your stewards. Help us to be good stewards. Help us to be good stewards. And may this stewardship pan out into something glorious in our city. Lord, that's the way you work. You don't work without stewards. Paul planted Apollos waters, but God causes the growth. Lord, help us to be good planters and good waterers so that you will cause growth because it's clear we can't bypass that formula and God will just cause growth. He won't do it. Not his kind of growth. So, Lord, we're asking for that mercy. Give us the wisdom to encourage one another to sort it out and do it. Jesus is king. He's Lord. He's alive from the dead. He's ascended on high over all the powers of the air. And he deserves a people like this. In his name we pray. Amen.